0: courage i learned it from my adoptive mom
1: hold my hand you hold my hand
2: learn about adopting a team from foster care at adoptuskids.org. you can't imagine the reward brought to you by adopt us kids the u.s department of health and human services and the ad council
0: from the wall street journal this is bad bats i'm ben foldy Every great financial bubble begins with a mirage. Enron and WorldCom made their stodgy businesses look sexy. Lehman Brothers flew sky high on a belief that home prices would only go up. Theranos dazzled investors with claims that its technology could change the future of healthcare. All of those companies collapsed when reality intervened. A different kind of bubble was happening in 2020. There was tons of money hunting green investments. Capital markets were wide open to companies that hadn't sold anything yet. As added fuel, there were retail investors, trading at home during the pandemic, eagerly looking for the next stock that could fly them on a rocket to the moon. And there was Trevor Milton, a man with a promise.
3: I'm going to build this company, become the most valuable trucking company in the world, one of the most valuable brands in the world, one of the top, you know, maybe five or ten greatest growth stories in American history, because I know what's coming. Trevor captivated investors large and small, and the moment quickly
0: made him very, very rich. When Nikola's stock was at its peak, he was on the Forbes list of the richest Americans. But moments pass, the bubble bursts, and sometimes there are consequences. Billionaire tycoon who promised to revolutionize the Bill trucking industry with electric social media now.
3: platform and TV appearances to inflate chair of his Nicola company's stock is now on trial price. in New York.
1: He's charged with lying about the company's products to mislead investors and prop up.
0: Instead of becoming an icon of the electric vehicle revolution. Trevor Milton became an icon for the excesses of the frenzied markets of 2020, when Nicola's Shares doubled in value in a single day. And this September, he went to trial on four counts of fraud. I am, I am a rolling tape, as they say in the biz. And I'm here on the steps of the Southern District Court in Lower Manhattan. I was there, at the courthouse covering the trial. And on the first day of testimony, many of the people I've met while reporting this story the short seller, Nate Anderson, and the whistleblower lawyer. I'm out here with Mark Pugsley. Hey. His clients. I'm out here with Paul Lackey. Hello. With Mike Schrout. Hi. The four of them had spent months working together on the Hindenburg Report. But all that work had been remote, they said. A marathon of signal chat threads and calls. And now, for the first time, they were meeting in person. Here's
4: Mike. I always just kind of thought of us as pen pals, you know?
0: It's like meeting your pen pal after. Yeah, it's like a
4: digital pen pal, like... I feel like he's an old army buddy or something. We've been through a lot of stuff, but we haven't actually met until a couple of days ago. We were talking standing on
0: the steps of the famous Thurgood Marshall U.S. courthouse. Then Mark pointed out that Trevor was down the block,
4: looking at us.
3: look towards me, like how Trevor's looking
4: at you. Oh, really? Okay. That's cool. That's interesting. So I got Trevor giving me the stink eye right behind my back right now. Then Trevor walked past with his lawyers, and I asked if he'd do
0: an interview. They declined. Before, during, and after the trial, we sent summaries of our reporting and questions to Trevor's lawyers and PR reps. They never answered our questions, but one of his lawyers said we had, quote, inaccurately reported on numerous aspects of Mr. Milton's life, without giving us any specifics. So Trevor's side of this story has been something I've been left to piece together on my own. Not long after the Hindenburg report came out, his social media went dark, and he's avoided the press since. The trial was my chance to finally get a sense of Trevor's version of what happened, why he said he was innocent. In this season finale, I'll take you inside the trial and the version of events presented by prosecutors and Trevor's defense. We'll hear a secretly recorded phone call played by prosecutors in court, and I'll talk to some of the jurors who helped decide Trevor's case. To understand what the prosecution and defense each had to do to win, I sat down with my colleague who covered the trial with me.
1: My name is Corinne Ramey. I'm a reporter at The Wall Street Journal. I cover white-collar crime and federal law enforcement. And I've been covering courts here at the Journal for about six years.
0: Corinne's reporting often takes her inside high-profile cases like this one. She told me financial fraud cases can be difficult to prosecute because the prosecutors have to convince jurors about not just the defendant's actions, but also their intentions.
1: If you have a murder case, like you have a dead body and you have a gun, and the question is often who did it. Mm -hmm. But in financial crime, there's less debate over the events in question. Like we all agree that Trevor tweeted and he sent these emails. But the question is, what was in his head Mm -hmm. when he did it? What was his state of mind? What was he thinking? And that is a tricky thing, like to get in somebody's head and know what they were thinking. So a lot of this trial was really about that.
0: Founders often talk a big game about the future of their companies. But in this case, Corinne told me, Puffery would cross the line into fraud if the jurors found several things to be true. If they found Trevor lied, if he did so intentionally, and if those lies mattered to investors. Prosecution had to prove all of that. And all the defense team had to do was create reasonable doubt about any one of those elements in the mind of one juror. Corinne and I talked to some of those jurors after the trial.
2: I'm Jennifer, and I'm juror number six.
0: Jennifer DeRoche from the Bronx. She's a safety director. And Maggie, juror number five. Maggie Garrity from the Upper West Side of Manhattan.
5: And what do you do for work? I'm a freelance bookkeeper.
0: Oh, okay. So this is your lane in some ways. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so how, I, I'm curious, you know what companies are supposed to look like, I guess.
5: Look, I deal with very small businesses, sure. right? I, I, I deal with people who can have somebody come in once a month and, you know, put everything in order. So on a, a completely different level. But, yeah, I mean, there's a there. I know some bullshit when I see it, too.
0: And to sway these jurors, Trevor had hired some of the most powerful defense attorneys in the business who have represented the likes of the Trump Organization and Elon Musk. I was eager to see their strategies, and as the trial got underway, I got a look at the first strategy, to discredit the witness. The defense tried that with the very first witness in the trial, Paul Lackey, the person behind the Nikola Insider Twitter account. Tell me what you kind of felt when you walked into the courtroom.
6: It was exceedingly intimidating, but on the other hand, there's a feeling of pride to be called into one of the greatest courthouses in the country and asked to, you know, go up there and tell the truth and the whole truth.
0: Paul told me that as he was preparing to come to New York to potentially play a big role in the trial,
6: he was asked to wear a suit. That was a slight issue. I don't own a suit. I have a tuxedo that I got married in. And um, my, my wife confirmed that that would not be appropriate to wear. So he borrowed a suit from his dad and wore the shoes from his wedding day. And when he was
0: called to testify, I remember him nervously shuffling into the courtroom, which was a grand one. Walls of ornate wood and stone, velvety curtains. I remember Trevor, wearing a well-tailored blue suit, turning over his shoulder and staring at Paul as he made his way to the stand.
3: How can that be possible? We've done it.
0: The prosecution played several clips from the Nikola 1 reveal we talked about in episode 3. They asked Paul to compare and contrast Trevor's statements with what Paul said he knew about the state of the truck.
6: It really was just, you know... The same story I've been telling or trying to tell for years, just this time, you know, under oath. When it came time for Trevor's lawyers to have their turn questioning Paul, they tried
0: to cast doubt on his character and motivations. They tried to imply to the jury that Paul was motivated by money. They asked him about the $600,000 he got from Hindenburg short and implied that he stood to make much more if Trevor was convicted, thanks to Paul's participation in the whistleblower complaint to the SEC. I asked Paul about this later that day. And he said something similar to what he said on the stand, that while he wasn't motivated by money, he wouldn't refuse it either.
6: You know, the SEC, or Congress in this case, they set up this program to, to give people a little bit of, a, of an incentive. And, you know, I didn't set out for any of this stuff, and I didn't seek it out. It found me. But, you know, I'm not going to flush the money down the toilet. We
0: asked the jurors we spoke with about the defense's line of attack on Paul Lackey, whether his testimony was colored by the fact that he made money off calling out Nicola.
5: To me, theres I don't have a problem with somebody making money that way. Um, I thought he was generally, you know, a, a believable witness. Um, they certainly tried to embarrass him, but uh, I, I didn't see any reason why he would be up there lying at this point. So the fact that he made money, yeah, not not really a problem. Not at all. I mean...
2: Paul Ackie made up with like six hundred measly thousand dollars, and then Trevor's got like eight billion valuation.
0: Jennifer, the juror, is referring here to the value of Trevor's holdings at Nicholas Peak back in 2020. His net worth is much lower now. Either way, this argument about financial motivations didn't seem to sway the jurors. But the defense didn't need all of their tactics to land; just one, which brings me to the second defense strategy that I found fascinating. They argued that Trevor didn't know he was doing anything wrong, because Nikola executives had been cheering him on and encouraging him. Trevor's lawyers did this with Mark Russell, who became Nikola's CEO a few months before the Hindenburg Report was published, and stayed with the company after Trevor stepped down. He testified for the prosecution about how Trevor's public statements on Twitter and in interviews raised alarms within the company. He said the company's social media passwords were changed to prevent Trevor from posting on behalf of Nikola. The ploy didn't work, however because Trevor just instructed an employee to give him the new passwords. But during cross-examination, the defense had Mark Russell read a text out loud that he'd sent Trevor after a TV appearance. The text read, "'Just caught your CNN interview. You have always had a gift for battle in the war of ideas, but you have clearly worked and focused yourself to a whole other level. So cool for me to see it.'" Sitting in the room during this part of the trial, there was a palpable sense of betrayal between Trevor and his former colleagues in the courtroom. Jennifer, one of the jurors we talked to, she said that she really picked up on this tension.
2: Every person that he personally knew, the way he looked at them is like, how dare you? How could you be here? You know? And that to me made it seem like it's a lot more personal.
0: How how could you see that? I mean, it's funny you say that because I watched. I was kind of sitting behind him as Paul came down the aisle. Yeah. And and Trevor kind of turned over his chair and stared at him, and I was like, "Wow, he's really intensely staring this guy down." But you could see that from the jury box.
2: Well, he was like there. You yeah. Know? I'm I'm on the second row. I'm up, and I'm looking kind of like down at him, and he's a tall guy, and he would lean in and just. And I'm like, okay, why are you so angry?
0: When the prosecution rested, and it was time for Trevor's team to call their own witnesses, they only called one, expert witness Alan Farrell. We mentioned him in episode three. He's a securities law professor at Harvard. The defense was using him, it seemed, to argue that even if Trevor had misspoken, or even lied in some public statements, it didn't matter. Because Alan Farrell said he'd analyzed whether the stock moved when Trevor gave interviews or tweeted. And according to him there were things other than Trevor's contemporaneous statements that could explain meaningful movements in Nicholas' shares. Things like market volatility or analyst reports. I asked Maggie, the juror who works as a bookkeeper, what she thought of this strategy. Maggie, did the expert witness leave any impression on you? Or?
5: He super annoyed me because he had set up this model and, you know, they kept saying the same things over and over again as if we were stupid, just telling us this, this thing over and over and over again. As if it matters, because it was really about this accumulation of lies that went on for years.
0: For Maggie, even if Alan Farrell's analysis was correct, that no single statement of Trevor's moved the stock on a given day, she says she was convinced that the sum of Trevor's statements had a meaningful effect on the share price. And when it came to cross-examination, one of the prosecutor's strategies with Alan Farrell was similar to the defenses for Paul Lackey. They asked him how much money he was being paid to testify. He confirmed his billing rate was $1,250 an hour, and that he'd already been paid more than a half a million dollars to work on Trevor's case. We asked the jurors about this.
2: I thought he was, he was paid very well for what he did. I'm like, bro, come on. You can say it if that's what gets you paid 1250 an hour, but...
5: Yeah, I mean, he made over half a million dollars, and good for him, I guess. Throughout the trial,
0: the prosecution had attempted to prove that Trevor had lied, that he had done so intentionally, and that those lies mattered to investors, all of which were necessary for a guilty verdict. And to me, there's one piece of evidence that would tie all these elements together for the prosecution. It was tape of a phone call between Trevor and a wealthy businessman named Peter Hicks. Trevor's trying to convince Peter and his son to let him buy some land with $8.5 million worth of Nicholas stock options. Trevor launches into the pitch.
3: I focus on what I'm the best at and the best in the world, and then no one can even compete with me. I go into meetings with... You
0: know, he talks about his leadership at Nikola and says Nikola is already locking down specific routes and making deals with energy companies to make hydrogen fuel. And then Peter Hicks asks a very specific question.
4: Now, Trevor, this is the plan. I mean, you're, you're not gobbling it up right now because that would be getting too far ahead of yourself, or are you?
0: The language in that question really jumps out. Peter Hicks is asking, this is the plan right? He's asking Trevor if he's talking in the present tense, or if he's talking about the future, about the plan, or something already underway.
4: You're not gobbling it up right now because that would be getting too far ahead of yourself, or are you? No, we are on a certain routes. So
3: from LA to Phoenix, we're already doing that. That's where that's where ABM bev is, you know, with Anheuser-Busch. So they've already given us their routes. Okay. And on those 13 routes, we've already begun procuring power and, and planning stations and gobbling up the rates and taking energy from the grid, and we're, we're already in that process right now. That's why we're going public. I mean, you can't go public on a open a dream.
0: Nikola executives later said in court that Nikola hadn't struck any deals with energy companies at that point. But Peter Hicks testified that he believed they had and took the deal, accepting Nikola's stock options as some of the payment for the land.
1: I remember in closing, prosecutors came back to that and said something like, oh, he had a chance to fess up, and he didn't.
0: Again, my colleague Corinne.
1: That there were these moments, like the one you pointed out, where he could have said, yes, that's the plan, and we're going to do this. But instead, he charged ahead.
0: In closing arguments, prosecutors said this call got to the fundamental argument of their case. Trevor lied about Nicola's business to investors intentionally. And then it was the defense's turn. Closing arguments.
1: What stuck out here for me was that Mark Mukasey, Trevor's lawyer, really, really went for it. It was almost a little over-the-top, a little bombastic. And I just had the sense that no matter what happened, like, they were going down fighting.
0: Trevor's defense attorney pulled out all the stops. He said Paul Lackey was basically a guy who set Nicholas House on fire while betting that the house would burn down. Trevor Milton, on the other hand, he said was merely careless with his grammar. This is from the transcript. Quote, "'Did Trevor Milton say some things "'where he used the wrong tense "'or when he used the present instead of the future?' Yeah, sometimes he did. But we are living in a day and age when everyone is on their phone and their Twitter and their Zoom and their TikTok and their Facebook 24 hours a day. So imagine the nightmare it is for Trevor at 40 years old to have his life hang in the balance because of some word choice he made, where sometimes he pressed send on his phone without making sure his grammar was on point. The jury began deliberating on the morning of October 14th, a Friday. Honestly, I had no idea what they would decide. All you needed for an acquittal was reasonable doubt in the mind of a single juror. My colleague Corinne and I waited. She was in court. I was at the office. And about five hours in...
1: I was sitting in the courtroom when I saw Trevor walked up to Trevor's brother and said, you need to call our parents. There's a verdict.
0: So I get this message that... There's a verdict, you sent me a message, Mm -hmm. and I run onto the subway, and I go three stops, and I run into the courthouse, and I'm like, oh my god, did I miss the verdict? And it's like, everybody's just standing around really tense, you know, cut tension with knife kind of Mm -hmm. tense. When I got there, Trevor was standing, the lawyers were standing. The judge told us he wasn't going to have the verdict read until Trevor's wife was there. One by one, Trevor's family members would arrive back at the courtroom. And each time the door opened, we all turned our heads to see if it was Trevor's wife. And then, she finally arrived. And the jury was called back into the room.
1: And the jury forewoman reads the verdict. And what I particularly remember is it was count one guilty. And then on count two, she said not guilty.
0: And then guilty on three and four. And, you know, family members kind of gasped. Some started to cry. I think Trevor was genuinely kind of surprised and shocked uh, by the verdict. After the verdict, Trevor and his family stayed in the courtroom quietly for a long time. Corinne and I rushed to file our story before deadline. I asked Corinne about the significance of the split verdict. What's the importance of that split verdict? Why does that matter?
1: So it matters because it gives the defense an argument on appeal. So there were two securities fraud counts. He was guilty on count one, not guilty on count two. And this is really weird and really confusing because these two securities fraud counts, they required like, really similar things. And so it was hard to understand the jury's thought process, like, how they could have arrived at this conclusion.
0: The one count that came back not guilty, one of the jurors we spoke with, Maggie, said that when they started deliberating, she was the only juror who wanted to find him guilty on that count. The trial had already run longer than expected, and she was worried that if deliberations dragged on, there could have been a mistrial.
5: You know, 11 to 1 is really hard. It's really, really hard, and it was um, tiring. It was the end of the day. So I have to say, even though I know this is not something you're supposed to do and the judge tells you, you you know, stand by what you believe and convince other people, I didn't think I was able to do that, and I thought we could have been, um, you know, a hung jury. And the whole thing would have had to go all over again.
1: And you didn't want to be that holdout, Maggie.
5: I did not want to be the person who was responsible for him potentially getting off, yes. After his
0: conviction, both Trevor and his lawyers have pledged to keep fighting. The three charges Trevor was convicted on can receive sentences up to 20 years each. Though under federal sentencing guidelines, he'll likely receive a much lighter sentence. Until then, Trevor is out on a $100 million bond. His sentencing is currently scheduled for January 2023, after which he can file an appeal. After the break, an answer to one last question I've had since I first started reporting on all this. How did Trevor think this was going to end? What was his exit plan? Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom.
5: Hold my hand.
2: You hold my hand. Yay! Learn about adopting a teen from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.
5: Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot.
0: The whole time I've been working on this story, I kept wondering, how did Trevor think this was going to end? Throughout my reporting process, I'd talked to people who had their theories. But in poring over the documents and exhibits that came out in trial, I found the closest thing I've gotten to an answer from Trevor himself. It was actually in that taped call with Peter Hicks, the one that got played at trial. We already heard the part prosecutors played as evidence of Trevor lying to an investor, but I'm going to focus instead on another part of the call, where Trevor talks about himself, his past, and his plans for the future. And just like we did with this podcast, he starts his story in St. George. I was in a small town in Utah called St. George, and
6: St. George is probably the worst tech tech city on the planet Earth. We know know St. George. That's the
0: voice of Peter Hicks' son who's taping the call.
4: We know St. George, I'm surprised, uh, yeah, you decided to base a tech company there.
3: Well, I was young, I was 23, years it wasn't, I was basing it, I was just like, that's just where I was living, and I was like, I just started
0: it. Yeah. Trevor talks about how the businesses he built there would have succeeded, but he just couldn't raise enough money in Southwest Utah. And
3: what I should have done is moved to Silicon Valley, and I would have gotten tens of, you know, billions of dollars from people at that time, because that was the hot thing. But-
0: Trevor goes on to describe how, despite being an outsider, far from Silicon Valley, he'd built Nikola, this world-changing company. And at the time of the call, it was about to go public. But Trevor goes on to say he didn't plan to stay on at Nikola much longer. He'd envisioned their business plan. But running factories, that wasn't his thing. I, mean, I really don't want to be on the assembly lines counting pennies for, for washers and who's who's the cheapest
2: washer supplier in the world. Yeah, I, This is my last hurrah. I'm done. So after
3: this, I'm I'm, and I'm going to be sitting on my ranch for the rest of my life and and raising cattle and just, you know, trying to trying to have a family. I don't have one yet. We're trying. So it's uh, that's going to be my goal, you know, after two years of being in there. At that point, I can't help the company anymore. It's already, the vision's already there, and all it is is execution and massive amounts of money that's, you know, coming in, and I don't really want to be dealing with all that crap. It's not my joy.
0: Trevor seemed to find his joy in selling the promise, and the promise had been sold. The details. He said he'd leave that to others.
3: You know, there's... At some point, it just doesn't—you know—it doesn't make sense to put a baseball player into a into a into you know into a soccer game. What I'm really good at is not running factories and running, you know, you know, doing doing filings for the SEC and you know, it just that just stuff doesn't even enjoy. I'm not even I don't even enjoy it.
0: Trevor made and sold big promises. He rarely saw them through to fruition. And before he had delivered on one, he was on to the next. And that, in the end, turned out to be a vulnerability. Because some of the people who once believed in Trevor the most, who tried so hard to make his promises into reality, were also those left behind when he moved on to his next big thing. And as we've told you throughout this series, some of those people found each other, teamed up, and worked together to bring him down. Mark Pugsley, the Whistleblower Lawyer told me that when he thinks of this case, he thinks of his client, Mike Trout, burned by Trevor, and then channeling that into becoming a whistleblower.
3: I think about Mike sitting in his garage for years, three years, just being sad and financially devastated by what Trevor Milton did to him. And I don't know if Trevor realizes this, but that that guy Mike that he thought he could walk all over, I mean, Trevor Milton could go to prison for many years because of Mike Shroud. And maybe there's a lesson there for people that think they can walk all over the little guys. Because guess what? Sometimes the little guys come back and kick your ass. Mike Shroud
0: and his wife Miranda. We heard from both of them in earlier episodes when they talked about getting into business with Trevor.
1: We were still in that era in our town where you trusted people.
4: Yeah, it wasn't unusual to, you know, just take somebody's word for
6: it. Not like we do now.
4: They were the first people we talked to who said they felt hurt
0: enough by Trevor that they started keeping evidence. Evidence that years later, they would use to help bring Trevor down.
1: I was 100% on board. Like, let's, let's give this our best because not only does it, ticked me off what Trevor did to us, but all the other investors, all the other people he took advantage of, and he needed to be stopped.
0: I wanted to see how they felt now that the dominoes had fallen. So I gave Mike a call.
4: Hey, Mike. Hey. Coming how to are you? See. Yeah, how are you? Uh, not great, but goodbye. What's, uh, what's going on? Um, kind of, uh, end-of-life care for Miranda. So.
0: When we met Mike and his wife Miranda a few months ago in St. George, Miranda had recently been diagnosed with colon cancer. When I spoke to Mike last week, he said the cancer had progressed quickly.
4: I've been over, uh, just staying with her almost 24-7 for the last few days. We set up with uh, hospice care at her mom's. So. I was hoping she'd have a I have a window where she's kind of lucid. Maybe she could jump on, but it, it's not happening this morning. I, I, do, I do expect her to be probably gone before the next episode's out. So.
0: I had called Mike, expecting to talk about his plans for the future, with potentially millions of dollars coming his way if the government pays a whistleblower award.
4: Yeah, the future's kind of a big, fat question mark in the important areas. The money seems a little bit irrelevant. It's really a, a small thing that I kind of remember once in a while. This is a much bigger deal to me.
0: Yeah, of course. I'm, I I guess um, everything I want to talk to you about seems a little insignificant.
4: Well, <clears throat> it's actually a kind of a, a nice break from the last several days to switch gears and do something different.
0: So I started to ask him about his experience of Trevor's trial. Where were you when the verdict came out?
4: I was at home. I was refreshing my computer every few seconds. What was running through your head? Gosh, you know, it's, it's really a mixture of a whole bunch of emotions. Kind of a sense of closure, maybe. A little bit. A little bit of a sadness. I really don't really don't hate Trevor. I did care about him. I did, I did want to believe him. I, did, I never wanted what happens to happen. I will say he has gifts, and I'll, and, and, and I'll say it. They really are. They're God-given gifts. You know, everyone has, everyone has some, some talents and abilities, and his are exceptional. Most people would love to have a tenth of what he has.
0: The anger I had sometimes heard in Mike's voice this past summer before the trial, before the guilty verdict. That anger was gone. Mike went on to say that his wife's illness gave him a new sympathy for Trevor, who lost his mom to cancer when he was a teenager.
4: Watching my wife um, kind of fade away with cancer, I'm starting to see how that could really, really mess with the... I'm an adult, and it's messed with me pretty good. I don't dismiss what he's done because of what's happened to him, but but I but I, I, I certainly sympathize with what did happen.
0: I'm going to take the conversation in a slightly different direction. Do you wish you never met Trevor Milton?
4: No, I don't. I don't. I don't wish that. Um, I'll be honest. Trevor taught me some things. He taught me some good life lessons, not directly, but indirectly. There's there's so much that happens downstream of an event. I've learned that I need to be careful not to assume that I know exactly the reason for that and exactly what will happen. Because often when I do that, I find out that the thing that it seemed obvious doesn't happen, but down the road further, something bigger and better happens because of it. I think i trailed off a little bit there. No, no, no. There's a a Yiddish proverb that you
0: may or may not know. Um, but in translation, it's man plans and God laughs. Have you heard <laughs> that before.
4: Yeah, I have. I believe that all these experiences can shape us for good or bad. But ultimately, we, we get to choose what kind of effect they'll have on us, whether we become bitter or whether we choose to be positive and bring good things.
0: Mike Shrout, Paul Lackey, Darren Brooks, and Hindenburg are still waiting to see if they'll get a whistleblower award from the SEC. And as for Nikola, it's paying $125 million to settle fraud charges with the SEC. The company did not admit or deny any wrongdoing. A report by an outside law firm that Nikola hired disputed Hindenburg's conclusion that the company was a massive fraud. It said Nikola had a defined product and a maturity level that was consistent with an emerging company. After Trevor's conviction, the company said it was pleased to close this chapter and focus on its business plan. The company has been trying to deliver on its promises and delivered 111 battery-powered trucks between April and September. It expects to begin production of hydrogen-powered semi-trucks by the end of next year. As of the end of September, Trevor is still Nikola's largest shareholder. Bad Bets is a production of The Wall Street Journal, this season is produced with Jigsaw Productions in collaboration with Storyforce Entertainment. This episode is hosted by me, Ben Foldy. The series is directed by Sruthi Pinamineni. Scott Salaway is the supervising producer. Ken Brown is WSJ's financial enterprise editor. Shane McKeon, Frank Matt, and Garrett Graham are the producers. Editorial consulting by PJ Vogt. Fact-checking by Elizabeth Moss. Sound design, original composition, and mixing by Armin Bazarian. For The Wall Street Journal... Daniel Rosen is the co executive producer of WSJ Studios. Ben Weltman is the senior executive producer. For Jigsaw Productions, Stacey Offman and Richard Perello are executive producers. For Storyforce Entertainment, Bly Pagan Faust and Corey Shepard Stern are executive producers. Special thanks as well to WSJ's Charles Farrell, Jamie Heller, Brent Kendall, Christina Rogers, Corey Ramey, James Finelli, Rick Brooks, Emma Moody, and Jessica Fenton. If you can, Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Thanks for listening.